Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. We've got an exciting show today. Mike Mayer, Fairway Independent Mortgage, will be joining us, and he will talk about how to make deals happen. He shares on how he got started in the mortgage industry, the difference between self-employed versus W-2 job, and how to qualify for a loan. He also gave a tip for new investors on how to refinance and get the best terms for investment properties, especially multiple units. So let's welcome Mike Mayer. All right. Well, today we have Mike Mayer with us. He is a branch manager over at Fairway Independent Mortgage. I just want to say thanks again, Mike, for coming on the show. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe some of your background? Sure. So I have been in the mortgage industry going on 17 years now, and I've been running my own branch here at Fairway for a few years, was with Guild Mortgage before that. And, you know, it's been a wild ride these last couple of years, especially last year with the pandemic really made things busy. I mean, it's been fun, quite frankly. I love being busy. Awesome. How did you get started in the industry? You know, realistically, I I just kind of fell into it. I had a friend who was in the industry. This was back in 2004. And I I made a move out of Los Angeles. I I met my wife down there and we we knew we wanted to raise some kids and LA was no place to do it. They just grow up too fast down there. So when I moved out of there, I was looking for a new gig and had a friend in the industry. And so I just, I dove right in. We moved to Monterey and I got my resume together and I walked into a mortgage office, introduced myself to the manager there and told him to give me a job. And I had a job the next day. <laughs> nice. I mean, did you start out as like doing cold calling or, I mean, don't you, you have to have a license yeah. to do mortgage stuff. So even if you, you know, got a job the next day, like you probably had to kind of work your way up a little bit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Realistically, it did take him a couple of weeks to actually get the hiring process started. But yeah. You know, ultimately, I, I tell that story just because, you know, for the, the listeners that are out there, when you're looking for a new job, just go out and get it. You know, the best way to go get a job is just walk someone in somewhere and introduce yourself and, and ask for it. You know, that's what managers want to see anyway, is that kind of initiative. But ultimately, back then, we did not need to be licensed. That was pr- before that occurred. And yeah, I started back then, you know, in 2005. In a call center environment, I was working for Countrywide Home Loans. This was pre-credit crunch days, and we were just like a big part of the problem, right? We were we were calling on past clients and pitching refinances. So I was sort of calling on portfolio clients and just pitching deals all day. And the great part about that start is I worked for in that model for about 20 months, and I think I closed over 300 transactions. And so it was a real crash course in the mortgage industry, and I learned a lot in a short amount of time. And then made the move to Portland in August of 07. And for those of you who knew what was going on back there in the market, that was a really bad time to move to a new city and jump into the kind of model that I'm in now, which is retail mortgage lending, right? Like I didn't have any leads. You got to go find your own business. And that was the summer of 07 when everything <laughs> was imploding. So it was real hard that, that first year and a, year and a half when I moved to Portland 
there was not a lot of business to be had and I was poor, but I managed to survive. And interestingly enough, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons in those years about getting out there and pounding the pavement and building referral partners and, and building business because there was no other choice. I mean, you had to really get creative back then to go find even a single deal. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there that were really a big part of my growth in the industry and, and really learning how to, how to do this job. Mike, we have learned a lot from you being self-employed real estate investors and trying to get kind of retail mortgages. Do you want to just kind of like break down the difference between someone who's self-employed versus somebody who has a W-2 job. Yeah, absolutely. Get a retail loan. Yep. So when you're self-employed, you know, it just adds a little bit more sort of, it adds a little level of complication to the way that we're going to underwrite and analyze your file. So if you're W-2 job, you're on salary, it's just easy, right? You're making this amount per year, boom, you know, divide that by 12 and there's your qualifying income. As a self-employed person, we are going to do an income analysis typically based upon the last two years of tax returns. And it's not just cut and dry. You can't just look at, hey, here's my adjusted gross income and we're going to use that, right? There are some analyses that we are going to do on those tax returns that are going to change that qualifying income. So as an example, the, the big ones that we're always looking for are Things like depreciation, right? People write off so write off depreciation, but realistically, it's a paper loss that, from an underwriting standpoint, we ignore. I'm going to actually add that back to somebody's income. And there's other little nuances where we're going to subtract from your qualifying income, depending on how you, somebody files their tax return. So ultimately, it just it just requires a little bit more analysis up front, and depending on how complicated the person's self-employed scenario is sometimes it adds a lot of complication right if you just got one business and it's it's easy peasy that's that's fine you know and sometimes i have clients that have 25 businesses and own 40 properties and then they're a real pain (laughs) but ultimately you know i kind of like that type of file right you know everybody loves a layup those are easy but really you know i like those ones that are hard that nobody else can do it's sort of a challenge for me, right? And yeah, it's fun. I'm some kind of masochist. I don't know. I, I like things that are hard. I wouldn't have any idea who you might be referring to. <laughs> Indeed. And 40 plus properties. That's, that person must be great. <laughs> yep. But so I guess one of the things that I, that you've taught us a lot about is things that a self-employed investor or just a real estate investor thinks that they can do, that they can control to make their file, I guess, qualify when it comes to income. So I'd love to hear more on, you know, when you're planning your taxes and when you're working with your CPA, like there's, there's some things that you've mentioned to us or that I've just had to learn the hard way (laughs) when I've, sent over my taxes that I think can really be helpful for, for our audience. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we could sit here all day and kind of nitpick all of the little, little details of tax returns of like, okay, we'll put a number here. Don't put a number here, file it this way or file it that way. 
you know, ultimately what I'm going to say is that the best strategy is make sure to talk to a good home loan consultant early and often. If you're self-employed and you're a real estate investor, you want to be having these conversations well before you're going to file your tax returns. And ultimately, if you know, we're looking at getting you pre-approved to accomplish something and you're not where you need to be and a, you know, a tax year is coming up, it's your opportunity to, to change that equation. And so ultimately, it's, you know, I would say you go through that pre-approval process early. Let's identify where you need to be from a net income standpoint. And then, you know, send your, your home loan consultant the rough draft before you actually file. And let's look through that and see if there's little things that you can do. So if you're looking for some specific examples, just as, as an example, and this might just give you some ideas as to some of the simple ways you can change your qualifying income. Some of the things I see all the time is somebody files a Schedule C, self-employed, and they write off a bunch of auto expenses on their Schedule E or Schedule C. Well, on the page two of the Schedule C, there's a spot where you need to put in the number of business miles that you drove that year. Typically, that's the way you're calculating how much you write off anyway. If you don't put a number in there, by the way, that number doesn't change your taxable income at all. If you don't put a number in there, I can't add any miles back. But if you do put a number in there, I get to add back 24 cents to your qualifying income for every mile that you put in there. The reason being is that you get to write off a certain amount. Realistically, though, you're not actually spending that much. And so from an underwriting standpoint, I get to add some funds back. Well, you know, again, this is just a simple thing that, you know, put a number in there. People send me a Schedule C and there's no number in there and you wrote off 10 grand in expenses. Well, I just, you just got hit with 10 grand less qualifying income. And I can typically add back almost half that. So this is just one example. And there's a million about (laughs) other little spots of the tax return that we want to look at and be really cognizant of. Yeah. I don't know. Is there any others you want to talk about that you can remember that we've dealt with? No, I think that that just kind of like presents the idea as our growth as AJ and I grew through being or becoming real estate investors, we got really familiar with our tax returns because there's two sides of the coin there. You know, you want to be able to write off as much as you can and And not pay any taxes, (laughs) but you also want to be able to qualify for the loans. (laughs) Yep. For sure. So sometimes you gotta, you gotta ride that line, you know, and certainly, you know, technically speaking, you do have the right to choose to not write something off not write off a particular expense if you want. The IRS will absolutely take more money if you, if, uh, <laughs> if you want to give it to them. And certainly, you know, I've had clients who chose to, you know, a particular year not write something off because it got them up over that threshold where they could qualify for the particular deal they were after. You know, and that's certainly an option that you have. That kind of touches on a good topic, which is capitalizing or expensing repair items. And you know, you could probably spend two or three, four, maybe even days talking about this with the CPA, but can you kind of break down like when there's a a major repair or some capital improvements that are made to a property? I know most real estate investors know that there's a $2,500 safe haven on any invoice that can just be straight expensed, even if it is, you know, replacing you know, kind of an appliance or a capitalized item. So, but when it comes to the lender's standpoint, how do they view those repairs when it comes to income? 
So if we're talking about properties that you already own and that are showing up on your Schedule E on your tax return, you know, presumably we're going to see a line item on there for repairs on a particular year. And unless those repairs are, are what we would call a casualty loss, a one-time expense, we're going to just hit you with that deduction, right? It's going to reduce your qualifying income. So yeah, replacing an appliance, things like that, that are general maintenance, that's going to reduce your qualifying income. As a side note, though, if you, let's say, go spend $40,000 on a major remodel that's not anticipated to occur again for a couple of decades, we can make a case to add that expense back to your income. So even though you've written it off on your Schedule E and it's reduced your taxable income, in theory, when I'm doing that rental income analysis, as long as we can document that this was a one-time extraordinary expense, I can add that back to the equation. So ultimately, what I'd say is, you know, keep some good records and some documentation. If you're whatever you're, I don't care what your CPA needs, but what my underwriter needs is some ammunition to say that, all right, these expenses here were a one-time expense. So I'd love to see invoices for, you know, things like countertops and floors and, you know, stuff that you're not replacing every year or every couple of years. You know, presumably you put a new roof on, that is something that potentially we can add back to your qualifying income. But painting, handyman stuff, appliances, you know, that's just stuff that you're going to kind of incur each year. So we're going to hit you with it. Yeah, that's super helpful is keeping, you know, the reoccurring expenses down and the, the capital expenditures up. I know what Chris is saying is that, you know, from a tax standpoint, like it reduces our taxes or creates more depreciation if we can take them as maintenance immediately. But if we expect that's just, it's just a straight repair deduction, whereas if it's yeah. like a capitalized event, that that gets deducted over 27 and a half years, which. So, I mean, I think it, this definitely just comes back to like, get that rough draft of your taxes and have, you know, your from your CPA and have your lender, like look at that and see, you know, that, I mean, I, I think that's the, yeah. the main thing is like, you know, where identify those points that like you maybe could improve upon that would allow you to qualify for more. Right. For sure. Yep. And you know, this is something we do with our clients all the time, right? Send me the rough draft. We'll review it. You, you set that rough draft up the way that you and your CPA thinks best to start. Send it to me. We're going to review it. If it's what you need and you're going to qualify for the, the deal that you're looking for and potentially the next one that we're planning for, then you're done. Submit through your return and you're all set. If all of a sudden we identify that you're a little bit short and we need to make some changes, well, that's then when we get on a call with your CPA and we start having that conversation, right? Well, what's, what are, what's a different way we can do this and run those numbers to then accomplish these investment goals while still, you know, doing the tax return the right way. So we just have to have those conversations. Every scenario is going to be different. Yeah. So why don't we jump back out into a little bit more of like strategy for, an investor who, you know, you've got your purchase loans and your refinances and then your cash out refinances. And how do each of those scenarios kind of affect your interest rate or your loan to value? Or, I mean, we probably should just talk about some of the blanket terms too, like loan to value and DSCR. 
that coverage ratio, debt to income, DTI. Yeah. I mean, do you want me to break some of those down real quick? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's hammer some of those out. Okay. Well, I was a purchase deal is just purchase, right? We understand that. When we're talking about refinances, there's two different kinds that we look at. Rate and term means that you're not pulling cash out. Although there are some tricks we can use to effectively get somebody some cash out. Not a huge amount, but but some. Missing a couple of payments, funding a new escrow account, yada, yada. And then a cash out refinance is when you're actually pulling cash out from the equity. And ultimately, your cheapest money is going to be on a purchase. And then a rate and term refinance would typically be similar, but very slightly more expensive. And then a cash out refinance is the most expensive. And so you ultimately need to weigh the benefit of that cash out against the additional cost that's there. And then certainly a couple of the other terms that we talk about all the time are loan to value, LTV, loan to value. So that's just the amount that you borrow compared to the value of the home. Generally speaking on an investment property, you want that to be around 75% as your maximum. DTI, debt to income ratio, is, is simply that it is the total amount of your liabilities, the amount that you spend to compared to the amount of income that we have. And in general, we like that number to be under 45% of your gross income. I don't know, I think those are the most important ones from my side. So- and then... When you say that uh, purchase is the least expensive and a cash out refinance is the most expensive, like I'm, I think maybe breaking down, because I mean, that's not just the interest rate, right? It's, it has to do with LTV and, and some other items that go into the expense portion of that. Well, certainly the LTV, your loan to value will affect your, the rate and cost associated with a mortgage, whether it's a purchase or a rate and term or cash out. But to compare apples to apples, if you want to do a, you know, a 75% loan-to-value purchase as an investment property, you're going to get a particular rate and cost. Well, if instead, let's say you buy that property with cash and six months later, you want to do a cash-out refinance on that property for 75% of the value, that cash-out refi is going to be more expensive, right? So for the same rate, you're going to pay probably five-eighths or maybe even seven-eighths of a point more in cost. When I say seven-eighths of a point, we're talking about seven-eighths of a percent of the loan amount as an additional closing cost for that cash-out refinance. So ultimately, there, there are some creative strategies to deal with that also, right? Where you know you own a property free and clear and you want to do a cash-out refinance. One creative strategy is you record a lien owed to one of your own entities and we'll refinance that lien as a rate and term refinance instead of cash out. Saves you that five-eighths or seven-eighths of a point add-on to cost. Again, this is just, I'm going to circle back to something I'm probably going to say 10 more times today, which is talk to your home loan consultant early and often about what your goals are and what your strategies are going to be to accomplish those goals so we can plan ahead. You call me and you want to do something tomorrow, we're locked into whatever the scenario is. You call me and you want to plan for something six months from now, then we got some time to figure out what the best strategy is. So AJ, you actually nailed the question that I wanted to ask (laughs) earlier. And that was kind of like talking about the costs. And so kind of dialing in how the cost of the loan and the interest rate are, are kind of fluid and they kind of, you know, offset each other. Like if you want a really low interest rate, you can pay a bunch of cash up front. And I was just hoping you could like expand upon that a little bit, Mike. 
because that's something that we learned, I guess, slowly and wish we knew a little bit more about it when we started. Yeah, for sure. So I can speak to that, right? So ultimately, you know, the consumer, the client is in control over the rate that they want. You can pick whatever rate you want, super low or super high. And ultimately, a lower rate costs more and a higher rate costs less. And so this is just simply we, something we can analyze for, for you anytime and say, you know, so where we start is a, a zero point loan, right? So if you're not paying any points, here's what your rate might be. You know, let's say it's, you know, three and a half percent. And you can, let's say, pay one point and get down to, you know, 3.125 or something like that. Well, one point costs you 1% of your loan amount up as an upfront cost. But you get a lower rate and you get a lower payment. And ultimately, then we can run that calculation to say, all right, well, how many months is it going to take you to save what you paid for that point? And that's really what we want to look at is, hey, what's that break even point, right? Is it three years out or five years out or seven years out? And then, of course, it just depends upon what your plans are for that property. Because you don't want to invest in a bunch of points to get a lower rate if you are ultimately going to sell that property or refinance within that break-even period. Because then you haven't made your money back. But if it's long-term hold and you don't expect to have to refinance in, in, at all or ever, then paying points can make sense. But it's going to be up to each individual's goals for that particular property in terms of what makes sense for them. AJ, do you want to touch on kind of like our thoughts and our strategy? I mean, we've had this conversation. Yeah, I mean, like, well, I, I was going to give a specific example. There was a, a house that we, we knew that we were going to remodel. And in fact, I think we got the rate, we went up higher. So that the mortgage company actually paid us for, we got money back for the rate. But we knew that we had like a eight month or 12 month year project. And then Afterwards, we knew the value was going to be significantly higher and uh, coming into a refinance. And then in doing that refinance, we're able to, you know, probably have that rate right in line with, you know, what, what makes sense by, by planning to hold on to it for, for some time. Exactly. And that's, yeah. So to, to break that down a little more specifically, what AJ is talking about is, you know, they had a property, let's say it was worth 400,000 as it sits. Well, we did a refinance for let's say 300,000, pulled a little cash out, and then they were gonna do a remodel and then it's gonna be worth 700,000. Well, ultimately their goal was to then pull out more cash in the end to effectively pay themselves back. And so we knew that six, eight, 10 months later, we're gonna be refinancing that loan. And so what we did on that first refinance was give them a higher rate. And I issued then a big lender credit that covered all of their closing costs, and I think, and then some. And ultimately, that higher rate, let's say it cost them 50 or 100 bucks a month over the course of six, eight, 10 months. The impact of that higher rate and higher payment was very small compared to the big old lender credit that I was able to give them. And then ultimately, we were going to refinance that loan anyway, so that rate didn't matter. What mattered was the one we got, you know, eight months later when we then ultimately pulled out 75% of the value of that home. And then you rode that one out in the sunset and probably we would have to look back at that specific scenario, but I would guess that you bought that rate down on round two of financing because that was the loan you're going to ride out into the sunset. Yep. Well, and one of the things that I think 
is missing from the story is that we had a plan to pay off that loan and then put a private note that would be refinanced rate and term to get the best terms on that property as opposed to doing a cash out because the cash out isn't a cash out refinance limited to 70% LTV. I'd have to look up those guidelines, but I think you're right when we're talking about a multifamily property. So not only, yeah, were you able to capture better pricing by placing a private lien there that got paid off, but you also then were able to borrow an additional 5% of the value of the home. And that's not insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Like if you're talking, you know, six or $700,000 place, I mean, 5% is another 40, 35, 40 grand. Yep. That goes a long way in a remodel. (laughs) Another one for some some other place. (laughs) So Mike, you mentioned, you know, multiple units. Do you want to just dive into duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes and how those properties can be refinanced using kind of Fannie and Freddie? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately duplexes are going to have different guidelines and rates and costs compared to a single family residence and triplexes and fourplexes are going to have different rates and costs and guidelines compared to duplexes and single families. So there's lots of nuance to all those guidelines, but just in general, right? More units, going to be more expensive and you're going to have more restrictive guidelines. And so those are certainly things we want to get out in front of and bet out, you know, early when you're getting ready to do a project. And as you're doing those multiple units, the rents, those future rents, do those not count as additional income for you as you're trying to qualify? They typically will count. So certainly if if we're talking about an investment property that's a, what we would call a non-owner occupied property, the rents associated with that property are are always going to go into the equation. If it's a brand new property that doesn't have history on your tax returns, then we're going to take the gross rents from that property, multiply it by 75%. And you get credit for that income and it will offset dollar for dollar the PITI payment, the principal interest taxes and insurance payment. So oftentimes, especially on a multifamily property like that, from a debt ratio standpoint, or the thing we talked about earlier, DTI, debt to income ratio, oftentimes on a multifamily property, it's really generally a net zero to your debt to income ratio. You know, sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's a, a small liability remaining, or sometimes there's a net positive. It just depends on the property. But yeah, you're going to get credit for those rents. Nice. And then, I mean, that effectively kind of raises someone's purchasing power, right? For sure. Yep. You know, ultimately, you know, we're going to look at all of their other liabilities, their primary residence housing expense, whatever else shows up in their credit report against their, you know, net qualifying income that we've calculated on their tax returns. And then ultimately, if let's say they're purchasing a a multifamily property, we're then going to do the analysis on that property as well, right? 75% of gross rents against what their PITI payment will be. And if it's a net zero, well, it doesn't, doesn't change their debt ratio, but it can go either way. And you touched on like owner occupied. I'm assuming that if you are planning on moving into the investment property, calculating the future rents for that is going to be different than if you're just buying it as an investment property. Can you briefly expand on the 
benefits and the drawbacks of both scenarios of buying it owner occupied as to an investment property. And this is all counted on the fact that if you are buying it owner occupied, that you are going to at least plan to move into it. Sure. Yep. So I love this plan, right? You know, buying an owner occupied residence, a multifamily owner occupied residence to then occupy one of the units is an excellent idea. It's a great way to build wealth and get into real estate investing as a new buyer. What that is, is a term called house hacking, right? The, the notion that you're going to buy a multifamily property and, and occupy one of the units. And so, you know, as an example, if you want to go buy a fourplex and occupy one of those units, you're then going to get credit for the other three units rents, right? We're going to do that same 75% of those gross rents. But instead of then using those dollars to offset your payment, you got to qualify for the full payment where we're going to add that income to your total qualifying income. So you, it, it's not as effective from a debt ratio standpoint because when we add a dollar of income, you only get to spend 45 cents of that to have to maintain that 45% debt ratio. Whereas on an investment property, if you're offsetting dollar for dollar that liability, that's more impactful. So ultimately, you still got to qualify for the home and you get a little credit for that rent, which is important. Most importantly on that scenario, you just get a better rate and cost, right? Owner-occupied properties just have a, a significantly lower rate than a non-owner-occupied. They also have higher LTVs too, right? Yes, although some of those guidelines have changed recently okay. um, and they've gotten a little more restrictive. So if we're talking about just conventional financing, owner-occupied, multifamily, you're going to put at least 15% down and then things get better when you put 20 or 25% down. There is a way to purchase multifamily properties with lower down payments. You have to use what's called FHA financing um, and that can you can put as little as 3.5% down for a duplex you're good to go. That's a, a really great way to go. For a triplex or a fourplex, FHA has a this particular guideline that's called the self-sufficiency test, which can make things more difficult. And it comes into play in more expensive markets. And so in the greater Portland market, we're now to the point where the prices are high enough in triplexes and fourplexes that oftentimes the FHA loan does not reach does not meet that self-sufficiency test with just three and a half percent down. So it's something we'll have to look at on each individual property. Yeah, Mike, you did mention conventional versus FHA. Do you want to just break down that a little bit further and how sure. choosing to go conventional could be different than an FHA? Sure. Yeah. So when we talk about conventional financing, generally speaking, what we're referring to is a loan that's ultimately going to be purchased by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. I'm sure most people have heard those terms before. They're government-sponsored enterprises, and they are there to basically buy up all the mortgages on the secondary market. And then they, of course, securitize those mortgages into mortgage bonds and sell them to all sorts of people, your hedge funds and mutual funds and your 401k. Probably everybody listening to this call who has a 401k owns some mortgage bonds. You just don't see that, right? <laughs> your 401k owns it. And so those conventional, those conventional loans have a particular set of guidelines that are set by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They change all the time. They're always kind of ebbing and flowing and making changes. And in general, they're going to require slightly higher down payments. You're going to typically have 
bigger impacts for things like having a lower credit score on conventional financing. So if you have a lower credit score, generally we're, we're going to do FHA instead. And so switching gears, FHA stands for Federal Housing Administration. These are government-backed 30-year fixed. They also have 15s and other products as well. But the FHA loan is designed to lower some of those barriers to entry. So it generally requires a 3.5% minimum down payment, which of course is really low. You're going to basically not have as big of an impact, almost none, for having a less than perfect credit score, right? On an FHA loan, you get a 660 score. You're going to get the same rate as somebody with a 740 score. And so ultimately, yeah, if you got a lower credit score and you're going to occupy the property, we're, we're looking at FHA usually. And Chris, did you have a question? Oh, I was just going to say the FHA loans and those low down payments are only for owner-occupied correct. loans, correct? Are there FHA investment property loans? No. Or second homes? No. It's got to be owner-occupied for FHA. So if we're looking at investment property and second homes, we're always looking at conventional financing. Okay. So if you're going to invest in a property, it's, it's always going to be conventional. Unless you're going to occupy it. Yeah. Unless it's a house hack. Yep, yep. So one of the things that AJ and I do is we're, once we acquire a loan, generally tax-wise, we move that into an LLC that has its own tax entity. And I, I'd just be interested to get your take on having you know, personal loans, but having them accounted in and taxed for in LLCs. In the LLC. Yeah, from our standpoint, from standpoint of underwriting you know, future files, it doesn't make that much of a difference for us. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines have kind of caught up. A few years ago, they, they weren't as sophisticated with respect to sort of how we were calculating some of those incomes uh, reported that way. But it ultimately doesn't matter. If you're going to report rental income on a partnership return or a corporate return, you're going to use the forms called 8825. And it looks exactly like a schedule E on your personal return. And we're going to analyze that income the same way. There are some little nuances to it that can affect things, but ultimately it's very similar. So, you know, if that's what you want to do, go for it. No big deal. Just be careful of how you hold title, I guess is my only, my only suggestion. Because ultimately, if you hold title in the name of the LLC, you can limit your ability to do things like a cash out refinance later. If you then ultimately want to put it back in your individual name and then do a cash out refinance, you typically got to wait six months. And when you guys... That's called title seasoning, right? Sure. And when you guys look at a loan, you'll pull the chain of title on the property and make sure that it has been... And, you know, for, for regional mortgage, it needs to be in someone, the person who wants to refinance the property's name for at least six months. Correct. Yep. And with any loan, we're, you know, we're going to pull a title report and it's going to tell us the chain of title, right? The ownership that has occurred over the last 24 months. So we're going to see all of that. Nice. We do often get some questions about the number of properties that can be financed or like the number of trade lines. Do you want to just maybe, I know that Fannie only goes up to like four, right? And then after it's all Freddie or what's... No, both Fannie and Freddie will allow up to 10 financed properties. 
but they're going to each have different nuances to their guidelines depending on whether you got four, six, ten. And so sometimes we'll pick, you know, a Fannie product over a Freddie product or vice versa, depending on where somebody is with the number of finance properties. All right. Yeah. So should we get on to our final four questions? Uh, sure. I think that sounds like a good idea. All right. I will start us off. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? <laughs> My 25-year-old self. You know, I would say that as I look back on my, the, the path of my career, the sort of arc of my career as a home loan consultant, I think that there were times in the past in my career where I got complacent from a standpoint of just change is hard, right? And, and I think that the advice I would give to myself is to just like, I should have worked to jump to the next step of my career sooner. And as I think as each step that I made from sort of a, a uh, home loan consultant to, you know, a manager and a branch manager and building a team and all of these steps that ultimately advanced my career. I should have done them sooner. But now that I'm sort of at the place where I'm at now, I look back and I think that I could have gotten here years before. So I, I might suggest, you know, both to my 25 year old self, anybody else out there li- listening, right? As, as you get good at something in your career, don't be afraid to take the leap to that next step have some confidence and go for it. Ultimately, you take that next step, you're going to learn a lot about that next role and realize that you can do it. That's awesome. Chris and I, I, you know, every year set very huge goals and, you know, having something to, to move to and to reach for, I think is, is incredible. I think that's great advice. Chris, is that what you were going to say? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, I was going to touch on something fun, your DJ career and <laughs> in Los Angeles. And I'm like, Oh, well, you know, I can, I can see how the, how Mike did that, you know, before he started as a broker. And those were some fun years for sure. <laughs> so aside from being a DJ in Los Angeles, Mr. Mayor, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Gosh, you know, I mean, I'm sure I did some other things, but ultimately the, the first impactful thing was that, right? Was that DJ career, right? Started DJing towards the end of my college career. And although I had a regular job for those few years after college, I dove into being a house music DJ and a club DJ in Los Angeles. And that was really fun, first of all. But it ultimately led to some entrepreneurial experiences, not only just the simple act of being a DJ and going out and getting gigs and doing that thing, right? It's essentially a small business. But ultimately it, it occurred to myself and my friends that we needed to sort of be the ones throwing the events. And so we just started doing that and basically started a marketing company that threw events and threw parties and that was really fun. And, and that then turned into us throwing big events for other companies, nonprofits, corporations, raising money for charities. And we did some really cool events back then. We did one at the Playboy Mansion, even, which was really fun. <laughs> we raised a bunch of money there too. It was really great. That's we'll awesome. A podcast on that episode. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds much more, much more fun and audacious than, than it was. Mostly it was just a, you know, a big old dinner and party at a, you know, at a cool venue. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I see. All right. Next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? 
Yeah, you know, I would say my formal training like hasn't shaped my journey a whole lot at all, right? I have a bachelor's in microbiology and molecular genetics. A fat lot of good that did me in the mortgage industry, right? You know, ultimately that formal training, you know, taught me lots about life and learning and it was valuable in that sense. But essentially what I have learned in my career in the mortgage industry has all more or less been informal training, right? It has been experience-based. And, you know, that's just how we've, I've learned this business is by jumping in and diving in and doing it. And ultimately, where I really learn stuff is when I see something I've never seen before. Oh, hey, I haven't seen that before. What are we going to do there? And I go and figure it out. We research it. And, and that's how I've learned as I've gone. And I tell you, it's really funny. I mean, 17 years in this business, I still see things every week I've never seen before. That's what I really love about the mortgage industry is just every scenario, every person is different. And it's a neat little puzzle to put together. And that's how we learn. Speaking about learning, what was your biggest mistake? And what did you learn from it? (laughs) Oh, man. So many, so many to choose from. It's like a life well lived so far. <laughs> oh, you know, that, again, this is certainly how we learn, right? You, you got to dive in and fail if you really want to learn stuff, for sure. You know, since we're obviously talking about mortgage and real estate, one thing that occurs to me when I look back at, you know, the first property I ever bought was just a good old fashioned single family residence. And at the time, I was really, I really wanted to buy a fourplex and live in one of the units and do the house hacking thing. But, you know, we had an 18-year-old or 18-month-old daughter. My wife wanted a piece of dirt she could call home, and I couldn't convince her to buy the fourplex. And ultimately, when I look back at that, had we done that, and then let's say 12 months later, bought our single-family residence, right? Well, you know, I'd have that fourplex now that would be in big, solid, positive cash flow and probably worth twice as much as we bought it for. And I'd just have that one extra property. So I wish we would have done that because ultimately the advantage there is that you get to buy a property with less capital investment as an owner occupied. So I missed that boat, but happy wife, happy life. So, you know, (laughs) pros and cons, right? Indeed. I know that my wife would never let me do that. (laughs) Mike, thank you. For those of you listening, that means do it before you have a wife. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. It's fun hanging out. So appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, that was fun. Happy to do it anytime. Just, I've always, you know, been amazed by how creative we can get with you on the other line, just trying to figure out, you know, some solution to make what we need happen. So, yep. I love putting those puzzles together. It's fun. There's so many pieces too. So yeah, Mike, you're awesome. Thank you for doing all like, I don't know what you've probably done 25, 30 loans for us. I'd have to count them up over the years. (laughs) It's it's been a lot. So if anybody needs a loan and they've got a complicated file or just want a really smooth transaction, feel free to, to hit Mike up. Mike, do you want to share your contact info? or a way to get a hold of you? Sure. My website is MikeMayerMortgage.com. And so uh, M-I-K-E-M-A-I-E-R, how I spell my last name. So MikeMayerMortgage.com, you can find me there. And yeah, everything else is there. Awesome. All right, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.